Welcome to the Rambling Runner Podcast. I'm your host, Matt Chittam. The Rambling Runner Podcast is a podcast dedicated to the amateur runner out there who's working hard to get better while trying to balance the rest of their lives at the same time. And today, I am very happy and fortunate to be bringing you Jen Rines. Jen is a three-time Olympian, and as you'll hear in the intro to the podcast uh, that follows this, she has quite a running resume, so I'm excited to get into that. Before I do, uh, just want to let you know we do have the Facebook fan page up. It's at the uh, the Rambling Runner podcast. I'd advise you to head over there not only to get uh, recent updates of the pod, but also other articles I like to share and other goodies as well. Also, you can follow me on social on uh, Instagram and Twitter. My handle is at Matt. Chittam. That's M-A-T-T-C-H-I-T-T-I-M. I hope everyone is doing well, and happy running. Welcome to the Rambling Runner Podcast. This is Matt Chittam, and today I am fortunate to have a wonderful guest, a three-time U.S. Olympian, an 11-time World Championship team member, five-time national champion, five-time NCAA champion, and a uh, master's record holder in the 5,000 and 10,000 meters on the track, Jen Rines. Jen, thank you so much for joining me. Well, thanks so much for having me. That is an incredible running resume. That is, that is something else. <laughs> thank <And> you. <laughs> it, it's, uh, I'm looking at it as I was preparing for this. I'm like, how am I going to introduce Jen? There's so many things to say. I'm, I'm going to have to you know, weed some of this out. Well, I'm flattered. Thank you. <laughs> Oh, and you know it's it's uh, it's it's one thing to to list the accomplishments um, that you have, and they are certainly astounding. But I think uh, one of the things that I really found interesting was just taking it all the way back, right to when you first started running, and how similar your first experience with running is to so many other people. I mean, you know, here at the podcast, this is for kind of the dedicated amateur running set, and your running start wasn't a whole lot different than most people's, you know, just going right back to middle school. Right. No, ab- absolutely. I, I, I knew I could always sprint faster than a lot of the other kids. So I was like, well, I'll go up the track team and run 100. Figured that would be my event. <laughs> right. And then, uh, and then it didn't quite work out that way. It, exactly. Then I realized I wasn't quite as fast as I thought. And, when Yeah, I remember when they first suggested I run the mile, I, I remember running in New York State, it was a 1500, and just thinking how long it was, and I, I mean, I even, believe it or not, I had the idea in my head a couple laps in of, like, maybe if I trip, I don't have to finish this thing. I was just so unprepared for it, <laughs> yeah, um, but, you know, and then, but then you put in more training and get excited about it, and things obviously <laughs> change a lot along the way. Right, and you just glazed over a lot of training right there <laughs> to go from, hey, <laughs> anything I can do to get out of this race, if a snake happens to come onto the course, you know, right. and, and bite me, maybe I can get out of this, to then becoming the two-time New York State 1,500-meter champion. Obviously, there's a lot that, that separates those two those two days. So what for you, you know, what, what exactly transpired where you went from an occasional runner to then someone with a potential career in running? Um, I, you know, I think a lot of it was I got, I got excited about it, and I realized if I put a little work into this, I think I can actually 
I apologize for that dog in the background. Um, I can be very oh, so you, the, dog, the dog is excited. The dog's excited. <laughs> yeah, to she's, ex- she's excited. She's normally quiet, but, of course, she's not at the moment. But, um, yeah, I think, you know, a lot of it was just, like, belief in myself and getting excited about it. And once I kind of put that intention out there, things fell into place. Because I remember talking to my high school coach and saying, when he asked what my goals were, because this would only, wouldn't be that long following that 1500 that I thought was horrible. I said, Oh, my goal is to be a state champion. And he was a little bit taken aback, but I think once you put something like that out there, you know, then you put the things in the place that you need to do to get there. So I think a lot of it is just that, that intention. And then, you know, just get, getting excited about it and getting to work. And, and it's the same, whether that's, you know, a, a, a goal of, Hey, I want to finish this marathon. I want to get across the finish line or whether I want to qualify for Boston or, you know, what, whatever it is, it's all, it's all the same idea. Right. Uh, getting your goals out there and making them concrete and having that intention towards them. And at the, at that stage in your life, did you have that idea crystallized in your head of you know, the importance of, you know, kind of uh, projecting your goals into the universe like that? Or was it just kind of a, a happy coincidence at that stage in your life? I- I think it was more of a happy coincidence for sure. <laughs> I definitely can't say that. Yeah, I had, I, I had it figured out all that much, but um, I think a lot of my success just stemmed from kind of having that belief in myself and almost just putting it out there first and then figuring it out later. Um, right. And then as I got a bit older, like I remember in college and I put the pieces together more like realizing oh, I actually enjoy visualizing my races on these morning runs I do by myself. I think that really helps. You know, as I got a little, you know, when I got to that kind of 18 to 20, 22-year-old age, I started putting, you know, putting the pieces together a little bit more. Mm-hmm. And with, in your experience, whether whether we're talking about you as a runner and then other runners you've seen at that same you know, the same age group, you know, the 15 to 18-year-olds, how much of kind of high-end success, right? And I would say you're at that level where you were breaking, you know, you're a two-time New York State champion and other runners of that same caliber. How much of that success is genetic versus training? You know, I think that's evolved over the years. I think, like, in my case, I think quite a bit of it was genetic because I – I ran some things very hard, but I would say in the whole scope of things, I didn't, like, I didn't do that much training in high school. I think over the years, um, you know, just there's so much more knowledge out there now and, you know, more knowledgeable high school coaches, um, you know, obviously the internet didn't exist when I was that young. There's just so many resources now that I think um, kids are training harder and training smarter. Um, so I think they're more developed at that age. So I think, I mean, I think it's, it's still a mix. I think in back kind of in my day, a lot of it, um, was, it was probably a little more on the talent side, um, because I would say in general, the times that kids run have really dropped, but I think also the amount of training and just the knowledge, um, that's out there, you know, has really increased as well. And you've had such a long career as a professional, uh, after your time at Villanova, which obviously you were very successful there as well. So how much do you can you attribute to your overall career length to, you know, kind of your, your start in running, not being, you know, too um, – not going with the high volume right away in high school? Like you mentioned a second ago, 
that a lot of kids nowadays, they run a lot more than, say, you did, and they, they but they also run smarter. And obviously running more does not always equate with running smarter. So how much would you attribute right. your overall career length to some of those ideas? I, I would say quite a bit of – yeah, quite a bit of it I would attribute to um, – I definitely – I guess one thing I would say, first of all, it's probably not really in my nature to overtrain. I mean, I've probably done it a few times uh, trying to get figure out the marathon um, and really pushing the limits there. But I think it's, I would say, in my nature to try to get the most out of what I'm doing. So I would say I, especially in high school and even in college, I would almost say I erred on the side of less training but more quality, so less quantity, more quality. And I, I definitely think that helped me um, stay healthy in the early parts of my career. Um, like Villanova was a great choice for me, even though I probably didn't understand, fully understand the training at the time. But sticking to that style of like quality over quantity, I think, you know, really helped me run well and stay healthy as a collegiate runner. And then as I got older, I, you know, pushed the limits more, but always paid attention to the little things. But I do feel like the, kind of staying under that line of, of overtraining or overdoing it is what's kept me excited about it for so long. Um, you know, I still love the challenge even right to this day of getting the most out of my fitness in a race, kind of no, no matter what that is, just the challenge of being able to rise to that and, and do that on the day. So what about you individually do you feel like – lended itself to not really falling into the overtraining category versus maybe some other people. Like what's the, is it like a character trait you're referencing? Um, I guess I would say, I've, I mean, I'm certainly known over the years as being like a steady competitor. So I think my personality is more, you know, st for, in terms of an elite, like I would say, I mean, everything, you know, an elite athlete does is a little extreme, but saying, okay, we're already kind of in that extreme world. I'm a pretty like steady person, meaning probably not real high highs and real high lows, you know, a little more steady along the way. So I think that applies to training as well. You know, it's, it's always, for me, always put in the work, but I say I was someone that really wasn't tempted to really jump way over that line to keep, you know, pushing to get that last tiny bit or, you know, um, so I, yeah, I think that's kind of just, just in, in, in my nature. So I may have also, you know, not experienced quite the higher high, maybe the highest high that another elite athlete would. Mm -hmm. Now, with, when it comes to being an elite athlete, how much of that is, uh, you know, you're, you're taking control of your own training program versus kind of selecting a coach or a coaching staff that, that is going to challenge you, but also work within your own framework of how things should be progressing? Yeah, I think that, I mean, that's hugely important because the, the coaches that I worked with um, over the years, basically after college, were Matt Centrowitz Sr. and uh, then my husband, Terrence Mahan, when he took over, uh, when he started basically being a professional coach in 2005. And, you know, both of them and uh, will design the program to the athlete as opposed to, you know, having a program and just throwing every athlete, you know, in, in relatively the same thing and having like a survival of the fittest type situation. So, you know, Terrence always, you know, caters things 
to the person's, he'll have his philosophy, but then cater it to someone's specific needs. So I, I mean, I, I trained with Dina Castor for year for years and we like absolutely did not have the exact same training program. Um, you know, we definitely thrive off of different things. So I think, you know, we're finding someone that you're comfortable with working to and that can cater the program to what you need is really important. And not, not just on the elite side. I mean, that's kind of my philosophy just as a coach in general is I like the challenge of taking someone, finding out what their goals are and, you know, what amount of time they have for training, what their work commitments are, what their family commitments are, and just seeing how we can maximize, you know, what we can do, you know, with, with the time that they have um, to work with. Absolutely. And on some level, and you're, you know, you're entering the coaching ranks now, and I love looking at your website, jenryans.com. Um, you know, first of all, it's really well done. I don't know who, who did the website, uh, whether it was oh, you thank or you, you, I did it. I did it my, great. No, I did it myself and, and didn't, I had a friend help me for about an hour and then just kind of, so I appreciate that because I'm, I was kind of diving into unknown territory there. So thank you. I, I loved it. And the, the about me section, your biography, I think it is the most humble, modest about me I've ever seen with someone who has so many career, you know, career accomplishments. I'm reading, I'm like, if I didn't know any better, I would think this is just like a ho-hum athlete. But it was very, oh. it was very modest. <laughs> um, but then you go down to personal best and you're like, oh my. That is that is fast. So um, <laughs> thanks. When, so when you're when you're working with first of all with, with your own uh, coaching now, what who are the people that you're kind of currently working with slash kind of aspiring to work with? What is the what is the population you're looking at? Um, right now, I'm basically like I do work with Adidas. I've been with Adidas for um, basically 20 years now, and I have some. Um, people that are kind of actresses, models, stylists, um, who I'm helping to run the New York City Marathon this fall. And I'm kind of transitioning into coaching, just coaching in general. Um, You know, I've been helping with the BAA over the past couple of years, kind of, you know, more as a mentor, but transitioning towards, for me, it's basically the perfect time to transition from like mentor into actual coach. And I'm basically looking looking to work with people, as I said before, who um, what I get excited about is, yeah, just trying to maximize what someone can do, you know, with their life constraints. So it doesn't really ma- – it, it doesn't matter to me whether they want to run a six-hour marathon or a two-and-a-half-hour marathon. Um, it's just the challenge of being able to help them get that done. Right. And is it is it different for you looking at some of those potential and maybe you're probably adapted to it now, but kind of like trying to figure out a training plan for somebody who, you know, like say it's the, I don't know, I'll just pick one out of the, like say a 33 year old mother with, you know, three kids and not a whole lot of time to train, but with, you know, pretty high aspirations over say a three to five year period. Is it hard to kind of like shoehorn time for that sort of goals within uh, the constraints that they might have? Uh, well, I think you have to, you know, talk to someone and figure out what's, yeah, what are their realistic goals. But then, like, I, I kind of enjoy the process of going back to, okay, what time we have, what are the most important runs or workouts to do, and, you know, kind of working backwards from there. Because I have, um, you know, some women now who are running the New York City Marathon who they can only run maybe four days a week, but sometimes it's only two or three so it's just, you know, what 
can the what can what's the best things we can do with your time to get you as ready as possible? Oh wow, so that that is quite a challenge. Yeah. <laughs> And these, and, and, you know, we're not aiming to run a three hour marathon or anything. Um, but so for me, it's just, yeah, I, I kind of enjoy that challenge of what can we get in in the time that you have and, and including like the extra things and helping people to understand like, okay, I understand you may only have one hour today, but if we can take five minutes to, to warm up and five minutes, if you can take five minutes to stretch later before you go to bed or 15 minutes, that these things all, you know, really help. So I kind of like piecing all that together, like the best that we can. Mm-hmm. And that's so interesting to have someone with your experience entering that realm, because I would love to hear what you see, you know, amateur runners, like say like myself, right? I run 35-ish miles a week. You know, I have certain goals in like the 5K, 10K realm, but I'm coming at it from a complete novice perspective. Right. So what do you, so for someone like me, what are some things that you've learned over time that you feel like most amateur runners maybe don't know about or maybe don't put heavy enough emphasis on that can really help them, especially if they're trying to be efficient with their time? Yeah, I'm definitely kind of, as I already mentioned, just always more, more isn't always better. Um, but also, I think a lot of people run a little bit too fast all the time. So it's kind of varying the paces and making sure that there's days, you know, if you're doing your workout, that's a harder workout. The next day is much easier or, you know, hitting certain paces for your long run, but just kind of having enough variance. Um, I tend to notice a lot of people, you know, they just love to run and they'll kind of stay in one maybe slightly too fast zone almost all the time. So I, one thing, I mean, I definitely first like to look at, you know, what is your goal, what pace is you running, and then work back so we, there's maybe a little more variation throughout the week. Right, and that was something that always hurt me. I, I, was, a, I was a college basketball player, and any time I went out for, for a run, you know, for training or anything, it was always, I was always in the gray zone. Like I was always breathing heavy, but not quite a tempo. Right. Run. And looking back on it now, I'm like, no wonder I was getting injured all the time. Um, and it's funny, what really – it took me a while to get over it. And what really did the trick for me was um, a book that I just love by an author that I'm a big fan of is Matt Fitzgerald, who wrote the 80-20 training book. And uh, for me, it just kind of crystallized that concept that you just mentioned. And I'd love to hear, say, for your own training purposes, going back to when kind of you're at the, the peak of your powers, right? You're setting PRs or you're really doing well in races. You know, for you, what did your easy running look like compared to, you know, say your tempo run? So what was the, what would be the varying times or the differential? Um, yeah, it would be, a, yeah, a pretty big difference. Um, I would say I would be running, like, say, a six-mile tempo run at 5.20 to 5.30 pace, you know, when I was running at a very high level and doing intervals, you know, mile repeats at 4.50 to 5 minutes. And my, the easy runs would still vary depending on the day. Like for me, if I did a hard workout on a Tuesday, like that interval type workout, Wednesday would be, you know, say a 10 to 12 mile run. It's probably 6.45 to even up to 7.30 pace, just depending on the day and depending if I was at sea level or altitude. Um, then there'd be other, like the next day I may come back with a shorter run on a Thursday that would be more, yeah, maybe I start at 6.45, seven-minute pace, but I finish at 6.6, 6, 15 pace. 
So it, it, and then for myself, since long runs have always been pretty challenging for me, I like doing them at a pretty solid pace, um, even if we don't have a workout scheduled within the long run. But my Monday run would definitely be the slowest of the week. It would be I, up at altitude. Sometimes I didn't crack eight-minute pace, just depending on the day. So in general, when I was tra- you know, training at my top level, easy runs were probably 715 to 625 pace, just to, you know, depending on the day. Um, one thing right. I think – I notice now, though, is in, as you as you get older, as we all do, you know, you get because this isn't just from an elite perspective. We get stuck in what we think our easy pace should be because it used to be, and that's something I've thought about a lot this year. Was okay, right now you're in 34 to 35 minute 10k shape, so your easy run is it doesn't it's not going to be 6:45 to 7 minute pace. <laughs> you know, you have to stop and and kind of be like, where am I right now, and what you know, then what off of that, what do these paces look like? Because I've kind of have ingrained in my head that like 645 pace isn't that fast, but right now it is, <laughs> you know, so you have to kind of make those adjustments both as you get older and just as your fitness changes, you know, throughout the year. That is a great point. Cause I, I can definitely, we always have our, our peak performance as kind of the benchmark for some of these goals and some of these, you know, training times that we, that we should hit. And I think you, you bring up a great point there and I love to expand on it later, but putting your easy pace in perspective, your PR marathon time was 229.32. So you're basically running your easy runs at 30 to 30 seconds to a minute per mile slower than your marathon pace, which I know when I was training for a marathon, I was not, I was running it faster than that uh, for sure uh, in comparison. And I know just runners that I know or runners that I keep track of, they definitely run it faster than that. And knowing that each person has their own individualized plan and you don't want to view from afar if you don't really have a good handle on what someone's doing. Sure, sure. But I can see, I can see how your easy runs were a lot easier in relation to your fast paces than most people are. And do you feel like your easy runs versus your tempo work was kind of the same way for other elite runners as well? Yeah, I think I, I would, at least the people that I've trained with, um, I, I would say it's fairly similar. You know, you have a little variance. I think like Meb is someone who is always, for the most part, he's he's never a super high mileage guy, but he runs just about everything at a pretty fast pace, and that's what works for him. Um, in the same sense, you know, I would say Ryan Hall would be was a little more in and out. You know, he would do something super fast and then some run super easy. So it, I, it does vary by the person. I think for most of the kind of more track people I trained with, it would be a similar pattern to myself. Got it. So just going over your personal best. So we got the 1500 and 409, the mile and 433, uh, 5K, 1454, 10K, 3117, half marathon, 111, and like I said before, marathon, 229. So which one of those, all right, two-part question, which one of those was the hardest one to get to, and which one are you most proudest of uh, looking back? Uh, I would say I don't remember. I'm actually not sure if you just mentioned my 3K or not, 
But I, I, I actually skipped it because no one runs the three K. Okay. So I actually skipped it. And here you I know, are but that I, I have to. No, it's okay. I have to mention it because that's probably my PR that I'm most proud of. Because it, I would say, if you looked up on a whatever point scale or whatever whatever you want to say is my best PR, that would be my best. That would be the strongest PR out of all my time. Um, and they kind of, I would say, for me, I I realized as I went on through my career that I could do the marathon, but it wasn't my best event. So I would kind of say, if you put these on a graph, it would be, it would kind of, it wouldn't be linear. It'd be a little bit exponential as the PRs get weaker, if that makes any sense. Um, Mm -hmm. So my strongest PRs, you know, were the 5k, 3k and 5k and that 3k I'm most proud of just because it's a time I never thought I'd be able to do. So it's kind of beyond what I thought my capability was, especially as a younger athlete, but probably the most difficult would be the marathon. Cause I think that was the most challenging event for me. Um, it just, it was really challenging for me to, to kind of, yeah, translate what I was doing in training to what I, to, to the race. So that one was probably took, took the most work, even though it's not as strong as my shorter distances. Right. And then I'm, you know, when you have the, the kind of the PRs listed that you have, and obviously everyone gets excited about their PRs or setting a new one or trying to get to a new level, especially if it's a round number, right? So you broke 230 in the marathon, right? Obviously like a, a round number that's easy for a lot of people to grasp. And there's a lot of people out there trying to run the sub four minute marathon or sub three minute for whatever reason. Yet you also have, you know, kind of, if you go into the other side of things where you have road races where, you know, you're not exactly going to set a lot of PRs in road races if for no other reason than you never know who's going to be running or you never know, uh, maybe you would as an elite, but then just the, the course itself, it might not be flat right. or uh, weather concerns, wind, things like that. So for you, how did you balance whether or not to do track-related events versus kind of the road race model and maybe doing, you know, the Fifth Avenue mile versus going out to a Diamond League event and running the 1500? Um, like for myself, I, I would kind of choose at the beginning of the season, what I really, or beginning of the year, I should say, what I really wanted to focus on for the year. And like most years were different. And I, I kind of started out as a track runner, you know, coming out of college and then moved up to where I was doing the marathon and then had like kind of some surprise success on the track. Like I, when I broke 15 minutes for the first time one summer. So then I went back down to the track. So every year was kind of different, but I would just plan out what my most important goals were for the year, whether, and sometimes that changes yearly as well. Sometimes it was, I want to run the absolute best I can at the world championships. Whereas, you know, another year, if there's not a championship, it maybe let's try to really get these times down, but I would just start with what's most important to me and kind of work backwards filling out the season season that way. And it, for me, it most often worked out if I was running races on the track, I would run some longer road races um, in the U.S., like in the kind of winter, early spring, then transition to focusing on the track through the whole track season through September. And then if I was able to re- regroup and do a few more roads, or if that was it, then it was just time for a break. Um, and if I was doing a marathon, then, you know, I, that would be the most important thing for the year and maybe tr- filling in some track races for fun around that. So it kind of, for me, I just picked what was most important to me for that year and then built the rest of it around that. 
Mm-hmm. And being someone who's focused on the track, obviously you do a ton of travel. Uh, I should say now, but you know, before when you were, like again, at the, the peak of your running career, you did a ton of travel, going to meets and things like that. And what did what? How would you compare, say, like the the Zurich Diamond League uh, track meet versus say like some local, not local, but kind of U.S. based track meets, whether it's Peyton Jordan or the you know, Prefontaine Classic. Um, and I guess I'm bringing that up because as someone who loves watching track and someone who, you know, I go on YouTube and as soon as the, an IAAF event happens, I'm on YouTube searching for, for yeah. different races <laughs> and things like that. And I always wonder, like, hey, it would be great if I could, you know, if it was more local, I could actually go see one of these things. Yeah, it's um, – basically, there's so many different types of track meets, I would say. Um, I, you know, and they all, like, have their different thing that makes them exciting. Like, I always got really excited to run – in the big stadiums like Zurich and Brussels. Um, and, you know, even if I'm jumping back to high school here, the first time I ran, ran Penn Relays as a high school athlete, it was like something just clicked for me. I was like, it was so exciting being in that stadium with all the people that I ran like 10 seconds faster than I thought I would be able to run. Um, so when I finished college, it was kind of, I was really excited to, to go over to Europe and experience, you know, those type of meets on the track. You know, in Prefontaine in the U.S. is kind of has that same vibe. You know, it's a really big, exciting meet. And I think we're starting to have more and more track meets in the U.S. that have a little, you know, have carry more of that excitement. And that I guess the thing is some of the smaller meets in Europe and the smaller meets in Europe in the U.S. Are, are fun as well. It's just a little bit different. Like a meet like a Rieti or Houston, it's an opportunity to run really fast on – like, you know, kind of in like a cute little stadium with a lot of people right on the track. So it has its own excitement to it. It's just, it's not exactly the same as running in a diamond league, but it also, but it still has like an exciting appeal to it. And I think we have, we're getting a lot more of those races um, in the U S as well. Yeah. Cause those races seem like a great kind of like a market niche in a way for, for a U.S. Uh, track promoter or someone like that where you have kind of that close feel to the track because I feel like track is similar to an event uh, or a sport like hockey where the TV, while it's nice because you get the full view of what's happening, you don't understand the speed of the athlete until you're actually right there in person. Right. And I think with that, yeah, with like I... the close-knit feel of a track, you get that. You really get that. And I thought it was interesting. I saw a mock-up of I think it's a German course. What they were going to do is like, maybe it was just something like a trial balloon. They were just throwing out there, but they're going to have like a bridge going from the outside of the track to the infield. It was like a viewer. So it's almost like people could stand on it and it was near the finish line and you could actually be literally on top of the track. I think that was in um, Berlin yesterday, just yesterday. Cause I actually watched some, some videos of some of the races in yeah, we were like, oh, they're going through a tunnel because they kind of put like a tunnel on the track and then it looked like they had some VIP spectating um, up above it. And yeah, I thought that was a really cool idea because that's a great meet. I've done that meet in the past and it's a great stadium and a great crowd to run in front of, but I thought that actually added like another element to it. And I was like, oh man, I wish they had that when I was running it. Yeah, it was great. And I think, you know, as someone who played basketball growing up, you always got that, that sense of the smaller stadiums, even though they couldn't pack the house, you always had a better feel for the crowd being involved and almost having influence over the outcome. 
you know, obviously, in, in, you know, with, whether it's basketball, it's a little different because they're rooting against somebody as well as for somebody. But with with track, like you mentioned, that the pen relay, they can really, you know, that if you get that really good crowd participation, it can actually boost the boost the running times potentially of the athletes. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think in some of those those bigger stadiums I ran in, there was definitely like that extra energy, and that some of those meets are where, I mean, a lot of us have our kind of longstanding PRs from those, basically kind of the combination of the fast track and the packed stadium. Right. So, you know, moving to where you are now, you've set a U.S. Masters record, of 5K, 5,000 meter on the track, 1545 and the 10,000 meter in 33.05. So I guess the first question is, what's the motivation, inspiration to still, you know, after basically 30, you know, 25, 30 years of hard training to keep it going and continue to push the envelope of what you're able to do physically? Uh, you know, well, for the past few years, I've been been here in Boston with the BAA team. So it's been really easy, like when I turned 40, to keep um, – showing up at practice and putting in the work every day. Cause I have this great group of young girls to work with and they're, you know, they're the ages where they're just coming out of college and they're super excited and it's, you know, all new and exciting. So that's kind of helped me keep going, I think, and kind of keep that excitement for it. Um, and I just like, like I mentioned earlier, the main thing is I, I still love to compete and I like the challenge of, seeing if I can get the most out of myself. Like I said, whether that's 1545 or today for me, that might be more like 1730 in current fitness. But if I'm, you know, stepping on the line, I still enjoy that challenge. But I think, I think the girl, you know, our, our team here has been a big part of it for the past couple of years because they're just a great bunch of people to be around and kind of helping them transition to the professional process keeps it new and exciting for me. And you you put out a blog post last week that was like near and dear to my heart. It was about, it was about nutrition, and I loved this line in it because it was one of those times where like wow, like elite runners think the same way I do, and that's not necessarily a good thing for either of us. <laughs> but it was that, that you that there was a time where you felt like you could eat anything and just put in the miles, and everything would work out, and that isn't necessarily the case anymore. I don't know if it was ever the case for me necessarily, but um, I love for you to just put that in perspective and how you kind of did a little at first, like a little dalliance with kind of a, a lower carb diet, and how that compared to what you had done previously, and kind of what you'd learned from that experience. Yeah, like it kind of as I mentioned in the blog, I'm I'm pretty fortunate with genetics, I would say, and that for a lot of my career, I if I was training really hard, I could pretty much eat whatever I wanted and I would still be fit and and you know, stay at my racing weight and whatnot. The only thing I would really do when I was younger is I definitely ate as the season went on, less desserts and less sugar and that made a huge difference, but I was never I I would say I was still eating definitely a high carb diet. And I know I've trained with other athletes where I can see once they start looking at diet, there's almost a, you know, there's a more significant change once they start tweaking, you know, kind of the carb fat protein ratios. But I feel like for myself and some others, it's like you can kind of get away with it. So you don't, you don't really notice what you're doing to yourself necessarily, because I mean, the inflammation is it's still accumulating in small amounts and you just don't notice. So, yeah, I kind of, as I did more reading, I, you know, I, was like, all right, you know what, the next time I take a break, I'm, I felt like it's going to be, too, for me, maybe too hard a transition to really cut the carbs way down when I'm training hard. So the next time I take a break, 
I'm going to, you know, kind of stay at that 75 to 100 grams or less per day. And the surprising thing was, like I said in the blog, it really wasn't very hard because I liked most of the foods I was eating. And the shocking thing was, yeah, when I started running again, I actually felt normal. Because, the, you know, previous break, I'd been joking, like, with some other athletes, and they were like, oh, wait till you're 50. You're not going to be able to move coming off a break. And, you know, it was kind of a, a big joke, and I've always felt terrible. And for me, that just made me realize, okay, you're, you needed to, I needed to see it this way because I didn't notice kind of it in the gradual accumulation. But taking away just, you know, throwing all that sugar and carbs at yourself for a week, I mean, it really had, like, a profound effect on my body. So just, you know, right. just the difference in soreness and lack of inflammation, just, it was just shocking to me. And to put it in perspective, and I definitely advise people to go onto your, onto your website, jenryans.com and check it out, is that you get these two week breaks each year and your preceding diet or lack thereof, it basically was just a free for all. And I was reading, I'm like, oh my God, this is exactly what I want to eat every day. It was like donuts <laughs> everywhere. I think it was like mid-morning snack, ice cream. I was like, yes, yes. This is like living yeah. on a cruise ship or something. And um, it's so funny that I look at that and I say, all right, that's obviously not good for me uh, personally. And most people would, would agree. And I'd love to hear your take on, especially as you're getting older and working with other athletes and seeing people who aren't you know, running 75 to 100 miles a week, how much of this is just broad-based general nutrition knowledge versus understanding your own individual body and what some people can do versus what other people can do. Yeah, I think it's it's really a combination of both because, like I said, even in my like in the elite world with my teammates, I could see. It, like I've been around enough now, you know, I could probably meet someone and be like, okay you know, this person, it's going to have a bigger effect on them. This person isn't going to notice as much, you know, kind of tweaking certain things in the diet. But I think there's general, you know, there's definitely general guidelines that we can all follow that will make a difference with our health. Yeah, no, I believe um, it. I believe it. And you've, you've inspired me to go to, to, to stick with my low carb leanings. You know, usually I get there and then I try, I usually what ends up happening is I come across some some nonsensical article about why I know you should go high carb instead. And I, it completely rationalizes really awful dietary decisions on my part. <laughs> well, I think, yeah, the, the interesting thing is I, you know, to get, if we got really technical into it, I think for, you know, for everyone, if you're looking to say, you know, looking at how you're doing with your fat burning, or if you're getting into a state of ketosis, for a lot of us, I think you, you really have to test that because it's very individual. Like for one person, they would have to stick to strict, you know, less than 50 grams of carbs a day to stay in ketosis. And then if they ate more carbs, it would knock them right out of it. Whereas someone else who's, you know, been fat adapted for longer can go back and forth. And if that's, you know, if you're being like looking to be very strict with it. Um, you really have to do the testing because it's it's very there's so many variances individually. Right, and I've done the fat adapted thing, and I don't think I ever got to ketosis level. Um, but mm -hmm. I think two years ago, I went, I did a fat adapted um, program for a while, and there were definitely benefits in terms of losing weight. And I think I dropped like you know 15 pounds or so um, at the time, and that's without even really training without changing my training at the time. Um, with that said, I noticed a big difference on the days where I would go anaerobic. And I definitely, 
those were the days I really enjoyed running the most. You know, I, I had like a track background and I loved, I loved doing the track workouts, but when I was doing low carb, I did not have kind of the spring in my step, especially as the workout would go, um, you know, towards like the back half of it. And I, maybe it was just my own personal right. experience, but I, that was definitely my experience with it. So I actually ended up changing it to then, you know, the night before, uh, you know, I knew a day that I know I'd go anaerobic, I would, you know, throw some potatoes in there. And, you know, maybe I just wouldn't be as strict with what I was eating because um, I'd have the little more rocket fuel for those days. Right. And I, th- I think those are things like I, I wish actually there were more. That's something that I would be excited to see more studies done on because I know at this point, you know, most of the studies have been on like running to exhaustion or on like endurance events. And so far it's like, I'm very curious about that, the being low carb in that more anaerobic zone. Cause for myself, I don't have any carbs before I do those type of workouts and I feel totally fine, but I know there's a lot of people that don't. So that to me, that's like a really interesting area that I, you know, would love to see more research on. But right now I feel like it's, it's yeah, somewhat trial and error. And I think like kind of doing the carb cycling is something like I feel like, you know, like a Dr. McCullough or a lot of people are pushing that even for people, you know, that want to stay in, in more in that ketosis zone, but doing a couple of days of carb cycling every week. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, thank you so much for everything. You've been so generous with your time. Every one of these podcasts, just like a good workout, I end with a few strides, a couple quick questions. Your answers don't have to be quick, but I'll just throw a couple out at you, and I'd love to hear what, you, what you'd say. Um, first one is, if you're running, are you going with or without headphones? I'm normally going – actually, these days I go almost always without. When I, did, when I was doing more training, um, when I train twice a day, I generally just train once a day now, I would train with my teammates and be more social, either be more social or be doing the hard workout in the morning. And I always ran my evening runs alone, listening to my music. And that was kind of my time to like visualize the race and think about race plans um, and all that type of thing. But these days I, I rarely ever put the headphones on unless I'm hopping on the bike to do um, a bike workout. <laughs> all right. So what are, you, what are you listening to if you do, if you do pop them on? Um, I'm always listening to something really upbeat, like a dance electronic type music. Um, I'm because I'm pretty much only throwing them on. And I'm doing something pretty hard, like on the on the spin bike. So it's just something to get me amped up and uh, get me through the workout. Okay, and you mentioned you've been with Adidas for 20 years, so I'm sure you have no no shortage of shoes. But when you're in your uh, kind of your training cycle, are you rotating shoes or are you sticking with one pair? and then rotating that out once it hits its breaking point? Uh, no, I definitely rotate. I usually have two or three different models that I'll just kind of interchange just depending on what I feel like grabbing on the day. And generally that would be like a, if I think I'm going to run a little quicker one day, I'd wear something a little bit lighter, like for an Adidas, it'd be the Adidas Boston. And if I think I'm you know, going a little bit longer, a little bit easier, then I'd be wearing like the Energy Boost. Okay. So say you're going for a long run, and you, know, you you mentioned before you're up in the Boston area. What is your favorite post-long run meal? What are you eating, and where are you eating it? That's a tough one because I, <laughs> yeah, my 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 post-long run meal probably isn't. It, it's probably not as much fun as it is it used to be. <laughs> um, yeah, these days I generally were we. 
either we'll hit the Trident Cafe um, down here in Back Bay, or I'll just come home and make like an omelet with just tons of stuff and some guacamole and some bacon. And that's, that's kind of what we did after the long run yesterday. Oh, that sounds good. I, that, that's my choice too. It was the big omelet with probably some, 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 uh, you know, tons of bread with butter on it on the side. So I'm, I'm yeah. an omelet person, so I, I can relate to that. Uh, all right. Two more favorite running book. You know, I don't, I don't know if I have one. Yeah, I I don't think I can pick I don't think I can pick pick one thing. <laughs> okay. All right. That's fine. And then the last one is who have been your running mentors, either as coaches or fellow athletes or whatever. Um running mentors. Definitely I when I was in high school, I always looked up to um, Vicki Huber and Sonia O'Sullivan, and that was, like, part of the draw for me to Villanova was that, you know, I would watch them on TV in the Olympics and that they went there. And then to actually be, you know, Sonia actually took me aside a few times and mentored me. That was, like, it, that really actually helped me get me um, – help me make a big improvement, let's say, get me over the hump from freshman um, to sophomore year in college. Um, and then later on, I, I learned a lot and always enjoyed training with Dina Castor. We trained, you know, I got to know her traveling around Europe starting in like 1999. And then we trained together both kind of full-time and on and off for years. So I probably, you know, I can't even imagine how many miles we've run together. So, yeah, the, the, those are the people that really, really jump out <laughs> when you say mentor. Got it. Well, thank you so much for doing this. We really appreciate it. Uh, is there anything you want to say before we get going? Um, I don't think so. Just thank, thanks so much for, for having me today and um, letting me share, you know, share all this, this whatever information <laughs> with everyone. Oh, that's great. Well, thank you so much, and happy running. All right. Thank you.